Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's Friday. We made it through the week. So this is our weekend podcast. We can kick back, look back at the week, look ahead, have reasonable conversations like we always do on Friday. So uh, welcome back to our good friend, A.B. Stoddard. Uh, thanks for coming back on the on the podcast, A.B. It's great to be with you, Charlie. Happy Friday. I mentioned to my wife that I was going to be doing uh, the podcast with you, and she said, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. I love her. Oh. So we get we get positive feedback, which I don't always get. I'm going to get it around here, but but I, I hope you will tell your bride that I follow her on Twitter and I hang on her every dog tweet. So okay, I will I will tell her that. I also share that with the dogs. No, <laughs> yeah, please because because I think they they kind of enjoy a little bit of social media celebrity. <laughs> I I don't know if they they fully appreciate it, but. We've actually had kind of an interesting run here because it's been very, very cold here in Wisconsin. So uh, my wife actually went out and bought a, you know, a few big bags of seed and she put it out back in the woods. And we've, we've had like this incredible menagerie. We had, oh. uh, I think we had 10 deer, including, you know, bucks with the, with the racks and everything show up the other day. And then, and then the turkeys came and, oh, cool. and the turkeys kind of drove off the, the deer and it was just like watching the deer and it's, it's, you know, there are certain consolations for living in flyover country in the middle of nowhere. This, this and was there, of there certainly are. And I think that what your dogs might not know is that they have, um, envious dog rivals on Twitter who are upset that they don't have the same view that Augie and I Eli know. and you Pete do. And the sunset on the water is certainly worth it. This is impressive that you actually know their names. This may actually go to their heads. Oh, no, okay, Charlie, so I am a pathological dog lover. You, you need to know this about me. All right, there's so much ground I want to cover today. Um, I want to talk about the Supreme Court and, and the kerfuffle over that and the, the, the back and forth and how that's going to play out. Because it's Friday, I'm going to give myself a, a little bit of a break, and I'm, we're not going to talk about Sarah Palin going and dining out in New York. It's just, <laughs> I just can't take it. You know, it's a, you know what 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 a, what a joke that is. But could could we just start with with Nikki Haley and what's happened to Nikki Haley? Because I, I there, there's a there's a phenomenon that I'm trying to put my finger on. You know, this is a very very accomplished woman, former. Ambassador of the United Nations, Governor of South Carolina, uh, clearly has presidential ambitions. Has broken with Trump at least for like five minutes. Now is trying to get back into the good graces of MAGA, and she goes on Guy Benson's radio show and to rip Joe Biden that everything Joe Biden is doing is terrible. Joe Biden's the weakest president ever, and you know yada yada yada, as opposed to you know the Churchillian Donald Trump, and. About 14 minutes into the interview, because I listened to a lot of it, she had this to say. This is Nikki Haley suggesting the president and the vice president both resign. That's the dangerous part of the next three years is honestly, for the good of our country, if if, if Biden loved our country, he would step down and take Kamala with him because the foreign policy situation is beyond dangerous at this point. <laughs> Sabi, you want to tell her? You want to you break it to her? I mean, uh, yeah, so she's being mocked on Twitter because she's putting Nancy Pelosi third in line for the presidency (laughs) in the highest office of the land. And of course, she trusts her as commander in chief. You know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And Nikki Haley is a desperate woman. And I'm really happy for her that, you know, Heritage had her to be the Margaret Thatcher speaker. You know, she has these little corners of the universe where she's so quasi-respected. And they fantasize about the return of a normal Nikki Haley saving the party from itself or something. But the, the character that she 
has displayed since she left the Trump administration has demolished what character she showed while she was in the Trump administration. And of course, the peak of her integrity was when she was governor of South Carolina. It's been a steady decline. But the ugliness of her trying to back away from Trump after January 6, 2021, and then try to crawl back is so pathetic. And I, and I, can't, I just look back at, you know, I, we, what, the way we spoke about her, the way we wrote about her. I remember in 2017, when we were still talking about yeah. Donald Trump's yeah. long list of sexual assault allegations. Remember, he promised he was going to sue everyone mm-hmm. once he was president and the campaign was over, whoever said, you know, who was lying about him. And she you know, she's working in the administration and says women need to be heard. I mean, she was she was brave. She took on, you know, people who were sort of talking down to her in the administration. Larry Kudlow said she was confused at some point and she stood up and said, no, no, I, I, I respectfully, I was not confused. She was like mounting this special lane for herself of like tiger lady politician that was going to like be Liz Cheney or something. And and it's just, it's just so sad to listen to her. It's, it's, it's. Well, it is. I mean, you mentioned the governorship. You know, when uh, the way she handled the removal of the Confederate flag was was a truly extraordinary moment. I mean, I can still remember, you know, the ceremony and the way the way that she finessed that after January six. She sits down with a uh, with uh, Tim Alberta and says, "We can never go that way again." And Apparently, though, she she sat, you know, by herself and decided which lane she wanted to be in. She says, no, I don't want to do the Liz Cheney thing. I'm going to do the I'm going to do the J.D. Vance thing. OK, this is where I'm trying to connect the dots, because there's this weird phenomenon. I don't know whether we should call it Haleyitis or whether we should call it Vanceism or something. It's really smart people who really don't have any illusions about who Donald Trump uh, is um, and whose loyalty in the past has been in question and therefore feel the need to be even more extreme in their sucking up Uh You know what I'm saying here? That, that, oh, yeah, that, you, that, you've got to out-Trump the re- other Trumpkins because you have to pay a penance. Right, because there's, there's doubt. So therefore, I have to come up with the most over-the-top thing in order to show my allegiance. So in some ways, these folks who ought to be the best feel the need to be the absolute worst. It's true, and... Again, it's they they have to contort themselves. Look at Lindsey Graham. I mean, he kind of is like the poster boy for that, right? And it's it's really terrifying. You can just hear as she talks, Nikki Haley, that she knows that it's a matter of months before she gets canceled by Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's just so painful. She yeah. that she had what like a five minute meeting at Mar-a-Lago after begging for months. Begging, that she can begging. say. You know, on the trail, on these to these lectures halls that she speaks to, that um, you know the president they they're they're in contact and that she went to Mar-a-Lago. That's what she needs to say. And what what's it going to do to her? It's it's it, she has no lane, she has no constituency, but she 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 can't swallow that. So I I, I know that uh, we engage a lot in doom and gloom, but um, I. I, I we should set aside a little time for a, uh, for some Schadenfreude because one of the phenomena that you're describing there is the is, is the way in which all the knives are out over in Magaland, 
And we've had like what, 6,000 Dems in disarray stories, all of which have been accurate. But there, there are some good MAGA in disarray stories as, oh, yes. as, as well. Uh, people trying to cancel one another. The story in Politico about what's going on in Tennessee is really quite something. <laughs> where, where, where Trump endorses somebody who used to work for the State Department and everybody else is like, whoa, wait, she's not, she's not pure crazy enough for us. And they're all beating up on, I mean, so we're in this phase where Trump is sitting back trying to be the kingmaker. And a lot of the folks in his, his group are saying, no, 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 um, you know, we're, we're still completely MAGA, but you need to go with our brand of completely batshit crazy. <laughs> and that brand is Robbie Starbuck. Robbie's, they're great, right. Some for Robbie with a man bun whose real last name is Newsom, but he just, his name is Robert Starbuck Newsom, and he decided to go by Robbie Starbuck and sport a man bun. And he is the, the MAGA frontiersman that Morgan Ortegas, who paid her dues, again, a former never Trumper, yeah. but, you know, crawled around, crotch sniffing, as you might put it, Charlie, for many years on Fox mm -hmm. and then working yeah. for Mike Pompeo. Um, embedding herself in MAGA so that she could have a, a run at a congressional seat one day. She probably has a, a very nice list of donors and backers, but Robbie <laughs> is in her way and people are mad at Donald Trump for rushing out to endorse her. You just, you hate to see it. Yeah, I hate to see it. So let me just read you the lead from the Politico story. So the headline is Trump faces MAGA revolt over endorsement. Former President Donald Trump facing serious backlash from diehard loyalists over his decision to intervene in a Tennessee House race with his supporters accusing him of spurning a staunch Republican ally who's running, which is Robbie Starbuck. Trump on Tuesday evening endorsed Morgan Ortegas, who served as a State Department spokesperson during his administration, blah, blah, blah. The announcement has caused a firestorm with far-right, high-profile backers ranging from, and here, here, here are the new kingmakers, ranging from North Carolina Representative Madison Cawthorn <laughs> to conservative activist Candace Owens, taking to social media to voice their support for Robbie Starbuck, a rival candidate who's been a mainstay of the pro-Trump movement. So you have the crackpot wing kind of flexing their muscles and saying no. I mean, think about this. Think about the world that we live in in which Madison Cawthorn and Candace Owens are telling the former president, you're not nutty enough. No. Uh, I know they have on vaccines and it's great. Like he, it's just so amusing to imagine Trump, you know, having whoever it is, you know, Scavino scroll social media for him to make sure that, you know, he isn't being battered around on the booster shot or any of the other things he said by Candace Owens and her followers on her channel. It's pathetic. It is. And look, I, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on Wisconsin, even though I live in Wisconsin and everything, but I could just give you a little brief, you know, thumbnail sketch of the Republican crack up here. I mean, it, it's really interesting. I, I mean, yeah. the, the Republicans are poised to do very well in Wisconsin. I mean, they should win here. It's an off year election, kind of a weak Democratic incumbent, but, but they're stuck with Ron and on at the top of the ticket in, in the Senate race. And now they're about to have a really nasty primary for governor. That's really bizarre. You have this guy named Kevin Nicholson, and he's, you know, again, he's, it's it's not a unique thing. He's this really super ambitious guy who ran for Senate last time. He's never run for anything before. And this time around was running either for Senate or governor. He just wants to be something. Yes. He wants to be something in part because 
Richard Uline, the billionaire right-wing donor, um, has been bankrolling him, put $11 million into his Senate race last time, just $11 million. The guy got annihilated in the primary. Well, so Ron Johnson runs for re-election, and he figures, I'm going to run for governor because I want to be something. And so he's going to run against the establishment candidate, who's the former lieutenant governor, Rebecca Clayfish. And right out of the blocks, I mean, the story is... Kevin Nicholson, who is referred to former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish as dumb as a box of hammers or something like that. <laughs> so we see where this is going. And he's going to be the insurgent candidate. The reason I'm bringing this up is because there's already kind of a, a, a crack up going on over how nutty you have to be about the 2020 election. All this pent up, uh, you know, angst and anxiety and people mad at each other and accusing each other of bad faith. So here's this guy got $10 million in his back pocket from this right wing donor. And he is going to run against the quote unquote establishment, the electeds, the machine, which tells me that he's going to try to get to the right of of the quote unquote establishment candidate, which means I think there's a very good chance we're going to see an Ohio Senate race type race to the bottom. You know what I'm saying is now it's going to be here. You have the Republicans saying, Hey, you know, maybe we can kind of finesse this. We can appease the crazies. You know, maybe we can grow this alligator in the bathtub, but maybe this time it won't grow and come out and bite us. And what do they got? They got a, you know, MAGA on MAGA primary fueled by all this money. And it is going to be a, just a glorious shit show here. (laughs) Just telling you. And that's that's what's so amusing about this is that if, if they couldn't go viral on social media and they couldn't find the money, uh, but all they need is if they have some millions and they you know have have an audience of crazies at the bottom that are willing uh, to retweet them and and send them five bucks and 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 you know wear their caps. It's going to screw up the entire primary. There, as you said, it'll be raced to the bottom, and it is going to be like an Ohio scene where you know that that the only person in Ohio, um, I guess Marino, the businessman, was sane on the Republican. I mean, excuse me, on the 2020 election, and thought that Biden had won. He's had to take that back and go like full big lie propagandist uh, to try to compete with Josh Mandel and JD Vance. Yeah. And then you have Jane Timken, who was formerly the the state party chair and formerly a normal Republican, having to run around and and you know trump herself up as much as possible, or she's not going to stand a chance. Yeah, and this is the part of the problem is they do this in the primary. Who knows what it's going to be like in the electorate? Although who knows what this year is going to be like? So before we get into this, because I know I know you you are you've written a couple of pieces that I want to preview. Um, I want to get your take on Chuck Schumer. I want to get your take on um, you know the the way the COVID derangement syndrome is is working out. But before we do, let's spend a, little, a couple of moments talking about the big story of the week: uh, the Supreme Court opening. Uh, Breyer finally re- retiring. Apparently, you know, people pointed out to him, hey, you're 83. If you don't retire, it's going to be a Ruth Gator Bader Ginsburg type thing again. And, and uh, give me your take on on the the opening, the opportunity for Biden and the way it's playing out. He doubled down yesterday, says, I am going to be naming a black woman to this seat. And they're probably going to try to fast track this. So g- give me your take of the state of play. OK, well, first of all, half of me an arm and a leg agrees with your posture on this promise to choose a black woman and then, and then block out everyone discriminating against all other comers. Um, I, there's half of me that thinks that's wrong. The other half of me 
thinks if it's what it took for Biden to win the presidency, and it may well be, it may have literally clinched the South Carolina primary because Clyburn told him he had to promise that. And then that clinched the nomination. And then it helped raise turnout for the election, both nominating a black woman to the vice presidency and promising to do so on the Supreme Court. First of all, I want everyone who missed it, they might have been busy with work or whatever, to just go back and spend a few minutes listening to Justice Breyer's remarks today. They were incredibly moving. And it really made me think, Charlie, about how we actually are really... um, it's it's really to our detriment that we don't get to hear from great minds on the Supreme Court uh, who normally, you know, keep a very low profile. I'm not interested in Clarence Thomas these days since his wife became a one six truther. But, you know, these are really, really brilliant people, students of history and constitutionalists and, and passionate people with who are great thinkers. And listening to Breyer reminded me that, you know, maybe when they retire, they can just I don't know. Let's take over like a cable news show, but they're they're really interesting people, and I thought that was incredibly. I agree. It was worth the time to listen to him. What I what I see, I, I liked Biden's, you know, sort of. I'm going to take my time. Let's not answer questions today. But I think that you see overnight a panic in the party that maybe one of their elderly members could get sick. Um, there could be an opening in the Senate and a 50 50 Senate. They don't have time to waste. They also don't have time to fight. We know that for a year they've been working on this short list and he probably knows who he wants and he's not really doing the consideration now. They've they've done all this. They've prepped for this. And the truth is the longer that you give the factions in the Democratic Party a chance to like line up between, oh, I want Jackson, I want Childs, I want this judge, I want that judge and 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 build you know, rival constituencies for the different women, the more dissent you have in the party and the worse it is for Biden and the Democrats. So I'm kind of woke up this morning and 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 decided, yeah, they need to do it like urgently quickly. I agree with you. Also, just a reminder, though, that it is a 50-50 Senate. And this is a party that has spent the last uh, several months beating the bejabbers out of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. You turn on certain cable shows and it's sort of like a Kirsten Cinema, uh, you know, hate fest. And they're already talking about primarying her, uh, even though uh, she's not up till 2024. Uh, people, this is one of the reasons why when you have a razor thin majority, you don't burn your boats. You keep the, you know, you understand what the math is. And the math is you don't have a majority without Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and all this bullshit. Well, they may not vote for the president's nominee. They're going to vote for the president's nominee, I think, because they voted for all the other judgeships. But also keep in mind that if you didn't have those two in the Senate right now, Mitch McConnell would be the majority leader and it would be irrelevant how they voted because there would never be a vote. There wouldn't be a committee hearing. There would, it wouldn't, he would do what he did with Merrick Garland. So kind of a reality check for those of you who've been doing it. Now, you said you half agreed with me on this identity politics thing. I, I guess, look, I want to make it clear. I think that the that the women that Joe Biden is looking at are immensely and impressively credentialed. I think, and I'm, I apologize in advance if I mispronounce the name, but the front runner judge, uh, Ketanji, is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Brown Jackson. I mean, sterling, absolutely sterling. She's 51 years old. Uh, she has Ivy League credentials, the same kind of Ivy League credentials as sitting justices. She got her undergraduate and a law degree from Harvard. She was editor for the Harvard Law Review. She clerked for three federal judges, including Breyer. Uh, she would really follow the same track as Brett Kavanaugh. 
who also clerked for the justice that he ultimately replaced, like Kavanaugh and, and seven other current and former justices. Jackson would be coming directly from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the second most important. I mean, and everybody that has worked with her and knows her says this is an outstanding judge on her credentials. So there's a right way and a wrong way of doing this. If President Biden had come out and said, I am naming Judge Jackson of the Supreme Court because I think that she is the best and most qualified candidate I have out there. And uh, she is a black woman and therefore also uh, provides uh, diversity for the court, which the court desperately needs. I think that would be outstanding. I think that you can be in favor of diversity and equality of opportunity. And I think it's a good thing to promote uh, you know, minorities like this, except that she is, her credentials are so sterling. She is so qualified. I think in some ways, it, it, the emphasis on the identity politics overshadows that. It, it It's a disservice. So the right way to do it is to say, I'm going to choose the best person and there's going to be no, obviously, you know, racial limitations. And then if you, you know, decide that she is the best, you put her on on the court. The wrong way is to say in advance, this seat is going to go to, you know, X gender X, because number one, it's reductive. It reduces them to their identity, their racial identity, as opposed to the fact that this woman has an amazing legal mind. On Twitter yesterday, I was debating this and, and also pointing out that the public hates this kind of over racial preference saying, you know, Absolutely. we are only going to have, you know, this position only goes to an Asian woman. This position only goes to a black man. This, I mean, overwhelmingly, the polls suggest that people don't like this. There was a constitutional amendment on the ballot in the state of California in 2020 repealing, basically saying, you know, we're going to go back to, you know, affirmative action, repealing the ban. This feels like a double negative, repealing the ban on racial preferences. And it went down overwhelmingly in freaking California. But discussing this, I, I, I kept coming back to William F. Buckley's comment that liberals claim they want to give a hearing to other views, but then are shocked and offended to discover that there are other views. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell that a lot of folks just have never had a debate about, okay, you know, how to discuss equality of opportunity and diversity in a way that is, you know, that that, that actually upholds other principles of equality of opportunity and, and diversity. But anyway, that that's my take. I think that I would love him to come out and, I mean, look, I mean, the Brooklyn Dodgers did not say, we, we, we need a black man to be second baseman. We're just, we're just going to find a black man. No, they went out and they got, Jackie Robinson, because he was the best freaking player in baseball. And they proved that. I think that Judge Jackson is a superstar. And I think that there's a reductive quality to the this process they're going through. But okay, so no, I drag really, me on Twitter no, again. You know, the, uh, this goes back to his promise. He can't unmake it. And mm-hmm. so once he made it. I got it. I got that. Then, yeah. then the conversation, as you say, focuses um, instead on on their incredible gifts and their and their resume on their race. And it, it is, it's just that he made the promise and then now he can't break it. Right. I, I don't think people should make promises like this, but that's yeah. my point. Okay. So speaking of the 50, 50 Senate and the reality check about why maybe we shouldn't be spending so much time, um, needling and knifing, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. I know that you've been working on a piece on Chuck Schumer. 
Um, I don't think Chuck's Chuck's had his time in the barrel yet. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't fully understand. Please explain to me some of the strategies that they have been employing, including staging these fake sort of show votes that are destined to fail. So give me your take on Chuck Schumer. So again, yes, he's he doesn't take any of the heat. That if you if you look at the family food fight that started that commenced at the end of the summer and basically continues to present day where the build back better social welfare, you know, agenda is on life support, it's always Pramila Jaipal or Joe Biden or Ron Klain or Joe Manchin or Bernie who takes the criticism from some wing of the party or gets yammered in the media, depending on where it is, or on Twitter. It is never Chuck Schumer, who could have avoided so many of these mistakes with his impaired strategy or lack thereof. He knew from day one that the math is the math. We've discussed this a million times. He knew exactly what reality he was dealing with. I understand he was worried he'd be primaried for his own race this year from the left. And so he has become a social justice warrior and like pro-marijuana and everything else. That's fine in your own time. But given the math of the Senate, how could he possibly have taken a letter from Joe Manchin in July that stated Manchin's bottom lines and let a fight go on, an unrealistic expectation of of Joe Manchin continue just to feed the left for a few more weeks and months and fuel a huge, huge fight that obviously is in the interest of progressives to extend when he knew the terms of that letter and he did not share it with Nancy Pelosi, who is basically the strongest asset the party has right now. And if you if you add to this the fact that, during which I think everyone should know, he meets in a small leadership he has all these leadership teams and he's in touch with people. He's always on the phone and he's very communicative, but he has a meeting weekly with Warren and Sanders and Warner and Manchin. Bernie and Joe are at the table together all the time. And when they have their fake public fights, that's fine. But Schumer should have been thinking and, and been involved in, in how far these things go at, to, and serve the party or the different constituency or the fundraisers? And then at the, what point are they counterproductive and, and, and you get diminishing returns? I, I, I think it's ridiculous that he, throughout the fall, kept saying, oh, we're going to do Build Back Better. We're going to vote for it in the next two weeks. He's always promising a vote. It was going to fail. He puts the filibuster mm-hmm. vote up knowing that he's not going to succeed to, quote, put everyone on the record he targets more progressive ire in that vote at both Manchin and Cinema, but he is, you know, out there speaking to Politico or whatever, saying, "You know what? I have forty-eight senators now. Everyone's changed their mind." And he wanted to be on the record, Charlie, showing that he forty-eight senators supported a filibuster carve-out. That's great, but you know, for Senator Cortez Masto in Nevada, who's the most vulnerable Democratic senator um, in, in in the cycle this year. It's not good to take a filibuster carve-out vote and get nothing for it in return. Yeah. So I, I, I want to mention one more thing because I, you know, I, I've really been involved in a lot of bipartisan efforts and really close up with a lot of bipartisan cooperation and negotiation between different members of the Senate and the House over my many years of covering Congress. The idea that he would pick a fight with Susan Collins because he wanted 
you know, hurt to lose. And she surprised everyone and won by eight points in Maine when Biden won the state. All the polls the entire year showed her behind. Yeah. Schumer never apologized to her. He never met with her. And he and she doesn't often go crap on other members in, in, the, in the media. And she was so stunned that she was saying things like, I don't understand why he wants to go into this cycle, you know, in a 50-50 Senate, having marginalized the most bipartisan member. And it's true. It's, it's absolute craziness to do that. All he had to do was privately have coffee with her. He didn't have to go out in front of the cameras. So why is he doing these things? Why, why did he make these decisions? Is, is it all about that he's looking over his shoulder and he's afraid of a primary from AOC? Is, is that the through line on some of these decisions, which, as you lay them out, just don't make any sense? I mean, I, is, that, is it a combination of being dumb plus fearing a primary oh. or just feeling the primary? No, no. I mean, sometimes you just look at – it's like you look at Mark Meadows, who writes a book full of reveals <laughs> – about his time in the Trump White House and then tells the one six committee he can't discuss those reveals that are already in a book. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, does that make you dumb? I, Schumer is just, I don't think he's a, a great leader and you don't cross Nancy Pelosi. That's rule number one. So where are we at on, on, on Bill Back Better? It seems to me like Manchin's just in an extremely bad mood. They've managed to, to burn some bridges to him. Um, yeah. and, and this went from, um, we're negotiating, here's my number on the table to, yeah, I'll get back to you. Yeah. So it is currently not on the table. There are no negotiations. Manchin's not at the table. Everyone is conceding privately that whatever happens is going to be a Manchin-written, drafted bill, and that they'll call a win and they'll move on. That would be the best thing for the party, and I've been advocating that for months. But I don't even know if he's at the table because he's recently said, well, I think we need to see we, how we deal with our problems with things like inflation and the debt, he said, which means, Charlie, this uh, will not take place during our lifetimes. Now, now, they've been talking about breaking it up. I, we're talking about a reconciliation bill. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. They get one shot at this. So there's yeah. one vote. So they're obviously not going to squander that. So something will pass through reconciliation. But when they talk about breaking the bill up, that's not going to happen. I mean, they can break it up, but you only get the one shot. They're not going to get eight shots. They're not going to get six shots at passing all of this. So this is another one of these performative maneuvers rather than something that is designed to get something passed and signed, correct? Exactly. And so knowing that Manchin has been blunt behind closed doors with the leadership and the president and his entire team all along, are you going to actually try to salvage a win or are you go, which is a mansion bill and it's going to make everybody upset, but you get whatever, you know, you, you get what he gives you and you call it a win or are, are you going to have more show votes? And I think time will tell. I, I don't know that Chuck Schumer thinks he's made any mistakes and it, the, the, you know, their playbook reported this this week or oh God, forgive me if it was punch bowl. Uh, that, you know, that, that Senate Democrats are, are really upset with him. The animosity towards yeah. Manchin right. and cinema yeah. is not good, especially now that Breyer's retired. As you mentioned, they have supported all these lower court justices that Biden's nominated, 75% of whom are women and 65% of whom are non-white. Mm -hmm. They've played ball on the ARP, on all these things. And the Senate Democratic, the team is mad at Schumer. But I don't, I don't get a sense that, he, that we're going to see a course correction from him. All right, let's move on. I know that you're working on a piece for for us for the Bulwark on uh, COVID derangement syndrome. I <laughs> uh, want to get a sense of, of where we're at now because it does seem as if, even though the numbers are, you know, continue to, to tick up, 
in, in terms of the the Omicron variant, uh, that that Americans are just done with this. That they're they're done with mask mandates. They are done even with with vaccine mandates, and that the politics have changed. So so talk to me about right now where we're at on the politics of COVID derangement syndrome. COVID derangement is a winner for Republicans, and as no, sick as we think great. that is, well, wonderful. Basically, um, if you look past the dead family, friends, and uh, you know voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other, other than the dead people. Right. I mean, to them is a casualty yeah. in, a, in, a, in a culture war that elevate either helps them sustain power or gain power. If you are blocking a fire truck from a burning house, you are pro-fire. And so the idea that you would still be blocking all these things, allowing the Delta variant to become the Omicron variant means that you are pro-infection. The virus replicates and mutates. New variants jolt the economy and Americans blame President Joe Biden. And it's insane and sick, but it's it's working for them. They're poised to take over the House and Senate. We don't see that swing voters are punishing the Republicans for their COVID derangement. And um, despite the fact that it's completely grim and surreal and depraved, uh, it is a political winner. In MAGA world, you climb the power structure by, just like we were talking about before, about sort of out-trumping. Right. The, the number one litmus threshold is the big lie propaganda. How much you know? are you willing to trumpet it in every appearance that you have? How many tweets a month are you talking about it? But the second thing is COVID radicalism. You must be a radical on COVID and try to one-up each other by hiding state data, spreading conspiracy theories, um, and 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 basically spreading the disease. I mean that that that's. I'm sorry, it's dramatic, but I think it's time we admitted it. And so, I mean, that's obviously Ron DeSantis's strategy that he's that he's you know even more anti-vaccine than well, considering that uh, now now Trump is endorsing the vaccine, but. Your point is that besides the death count, it's not hurting them. So that doesn't appear to be registering. I mean, I, I was flashing back the other day, thinking about when we hit 100,000 deaths. Remember one of the newspapers just ran like a full page with all the names. And of yes. course, it was, it was only a fraction of them. And we just marked that as this amazing, you know, tragic milestone. We're now still losing 2,000 people a day. And we're heading toward a million Americans dead from COVID. And I don't see any indication that you're wrong about this, that the voters are just like, we're just done. You know, take, take the mask off. We don't, we don't, we don't need the mask. We're, we're all going to go out to dinner together and, uh, and, and the, and the vaccine mandate. Now, when I, when I say that, uh, clearly, you know, the, you know, health professionals are still, you know, pushing this saying, no, this is, this is ridiculous. This is, this is, this is reckless, but it's a reminder that people to have limited attention spans or just they can they can make sacrifices for just so long and then 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 they're over it. Well, uh, yeah, I see that there's that there's burnout um uh, but the vaccinated are vaccinated so they're not stuffing up the hospitals, which is a responsible posture. We are living with the still the consequences of the unvaccinated impairing to the breaking point in some areas our healthcare system and spreading a virus which replicates and then mutates and creates new variants. A future one could actually evade our vaccine protection. So this isn't beyond reckless. I mean, it's we've never seen anything like this. They never lament the death toll, Charlie. 
Do you see any, have you ever seen a tweet from a Republican leader or office holder lamenting the death toll? Well, see, this is, uh, no, I don't, but, uh, and I'm I'm always thinking of, of the, you know, alternative scenarios here, because I think there was a period, and I certainly felt it, when as a vaccinated person, I was furious at the unvaccinated. Yeah. And yet there was no pushback from the Biden administration. I mean, yes, they they pushed the vaccines. Yes, Joe Biden did say this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. But that was never pushed. It, it, and I never I never felt that they drew that line sharply enough about the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And that if your life is still being impacted in a negative way, it is the unvaccinated and really call out the people for engaging. I mean, I just, I know the Democrats are not calling out that, this, I, that, this, this reckless rhetoric. And so they basically, the Republicans have had kind of a free field, haven't they? This is exactly what I write in the piece. Oh, okay. That Biden hesitated and was spooked by people like Ron DeSantis. He was so spooked about the mandates and he just decided from day one, he wanted to combat the virus and not combat Republicans. Great. So um, let's talk, let's talk about Ukraine for just a moment here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing this very uh, strange, bizarre, disturbing phenomenon of people on the far right who uh, decided they're going uh, pro-Putin. I mean, you and I are old enough yeah. to remember when when conservatives were patriotic, when they sided with us before they would side with an aggressive imperialistic Russia, including people who now call themselves America first, but are now apparently whatever Putin wants first. <laughs> but that doesn't seem to be reflected in, and tell me whether I'm wrong about this, among Republicans in Congress. Is, is there a split in Republicans in Congress? It seems that there's some evidence that Republicans in Congress are pushing an even harder line on Ukraine. At the same time, Tucker Carlson is sucking up to Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin. So where, where's the Republican Party on this? Exactly. So this is, a, a, this is a division that they would like to ignore, and they circle back to sort of a universal talking point that Biden's weak, and his border's out of control, and he's just so focused on the border of Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. But that's to avoid the fact that they're in disagreement. Mitch McConnell is a serious hawk. Uh, on this issue, and people like Congressman Mike McCall and Mike Mike Turner um, in the, in the House are also serious hawks on this issue. I would recommend people watch the interview that Turner did with Tucker Carlson a few months back when he was defending the territorial integrity of Ukraine and the U.S. position, why we would care, and why we're in alliance with them. We're in a transition. You know, I don't know that Mitch McConnell's mind will ever be changed. I don't think Mike McCall's going to go full MAGA and change his mind either, but. What, it, what it's doing is forcing people who were formerly outspoken hawks to go quiet. So I know that Tom Cotton is trying to point out Biden's weakness, but is he standing up on Fox News Sunday this week and saying, we have to stand with the president. I wish he'd go further. It's wrong to back down from Putin. I mean, anyone who's seriously running for um, the nomination in 24 or 28 is just trying to clench their teeth and get through this. There's no one, of course, who's going to say that we should send troops to Ukraine, either from the Democrats or the Republicans. Uh, but, you know, you, you could certainly um, I think there's legitimate criticism that uh, the administration should get out in front of an invasion with the sanctions, that they should uh, take a more aggressive stand about things like the Nord Stream, too, uh, that they could take a more aggressive stand about all of this. But everything seems to be just covered in this just, you know, this cloud of super tribalism. 
You know, I know what I'm saying. I mean, it's a, I'm trying to figure out: Are we having a good faith debate? Where is the bipartisan unity? Um, you know, saying to Vladimir Putin, "Do not underestimate this country. We may have divisions about X, Y, and Z, but we are not divided about this." That seems impossible now. Well, I think, you know, there was a bipartisan senatorial uh, delegation that went to Ukraine, and I think they're privately working behind closed doors um, with the administration on sanctions, and I'm heartened by that. Of course, they're keeping it quiet because they don't want to be in the crosshairs of, you know, I don't know, Ron Johnson or whoever the hell. But the point is that, yes, this is, it is like everything else being poisoned by tribalism. And it's, it's so unserious, you know, it's just so, it's so dangerous and damaging for us and our national security posture. But I do think that the one thing that I heard yesterday that I found encouraging, because I agree with your criticism Mm -hmm. that we needed to see something more proactive and not, we'll wait and see, you know, if Putin acts and takes lives and then we'll sanction. I, I think that it was fascinating to hear yesterday, Ned Price, the State Department spokesman say that if Russia invades Ukraine, the Nord Stream 2 will not go forward. He said in one way or another, and he was asked about the Germans, and he said, if Russia invades, he repeated it, uh, Nord Stream 2 will not go forward. And I, I thought that now, that was yesterday. Yeah, that's day. a big deal. But yeah. it, it means that be, they're growing some teeth behind closed doors, and it might be a hopeful sign. A.B. Stoddard, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it. We always enjoy it. Thank you, Charlie. Great to be with you. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday and do this all over again.